Section 7 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 5, Religious Settlement in England. The first result of Elizabeth's experience of the papal plans was to force her to fall back upon the Protestant party in England. This party was becoming stronger day by day, owing to the return of many who had been driven into exile by the persecutions of Mary's reign. These men had mostly taken refuge in Frankfurt or Geneva, and had there imbibed the opinions of Calvin. They came back deeply imbued with Calvin's system, and by their energy gained great influence over the people. Elizabeth and her chief adviser Cecil were both of them reformers in the sense that they saw much that needed alteration in the old state of things. But Elizabeth could never bring herself to accept the revolutionary ideas of Calvin. She had more sympathy with her father's plan of maintaining the old church system, but without any connection with Rome. She was also a great reader of the writings of the early fathers of the church, and her plan was to free the English church from the beliefs and practices which had sprung up in it through its relations to Rome, without altering the Catholic foundation on which it rested. In this plan also she had to proceed cautiously, for it was not a plan which could command popular enthusiasm. It would not conciliate the Catholic party, and would not please the followers of Calvin. It could only be established by careful management and prudence. Concessions must be made to both the extreme parties if the plan was to succeed. It was in this way that the religious settlement under Elizabeth gave its peculiar character to the Church of England. Elizabeth began at once to take a middle course between the Protestants and Catholics. She proclaimed that the old services were to be continued till Parliament met, and meanwhile spared no efforts to secure the election of a subservient House of Commons. A commission of divines was appointed to revise the prayer book of Edward VI, so that no time should be lost in submitting to Parliament a scheme for the settlement of the religious difficulty. The Parliament which met in 1559 re-established the royal supremacy over the Church, and enacted that an oath of recognition of the Queen as supreme governor of her kingdom, in all causes, spiritual as well as civil, should be imposed on all clergy and magistrates. The revised prayer book, which had been modified to suit the more moderate of those who adhered to the old state of things, was accepted by Parliament, and its use was enforced by the Act of Uniformity. These changes were violently opposed by the bishops, who counted on Elizabeth's weakness and on the discontent of the extreme reformers. They were ordered to conduct a public disputation with some divines appointed by the Queen. On refusing to continue the dispute and comply with the conditions prescribed to them, the chief amongst them were committed to the tower. Soon after they were deprived of their sees, and successors were appointed of more Protestant opinions. Matthew Parker, who had been Anne Boleyn's chaplain, was made Archbishop of Canterbury. He was a man of moderate opinions who held the same views as the Queen on religious matters. He was strongly opposed to Calvinism and held to Scripture and the customs of the primitive Church. He was a man of great learning and of strong common sense. 
the son of a tradesman in Norwich, he was a fair representative of the opinions and feelings of the middle classes. Archbishop Parker's moderation, caution, and good sense did much toward preserving the balance of parties and establishing the English church upon the broad basis of concession which so strongly marks it. Thus the Reformation was again established in England, and commissioners were sent through the country to inquire into its ecclesiastical condition, to administer the oath of supremacy, and to see that the new laws were carried out. Very few of the clergy, beside the deposed bishops, refused to take the oath. The changes were, on the whole, popular, and met with little opposition. Meanwhile, a change had taken place in the papacy. On the death of Paul IV, Cardinal de' Medici became Pope as Pius IV. He was a gentle and conciliatory nature, and his chief ambition was to see the schism brought to an end. He sent at once a nuncio to the Queen, offering to approve of the Book of Common Prayer and of the administration of the Communion in both kinds, provided only the Church of England would again submit to the papal supremacy. But his offer came too late. It is impossible to say what would have been the result if this offer had been made by Pope Paul IV, but the Queen's choice had now been made, and she had determined to side with the Protestants and separate herself from the alliance with Spain. The papal nuncio was not allowed to enter England. Thus the Queen had taken up her position. She wished to retain as much as possible of the old traditional system of religion, but she would have none of the abuses that had resulted from papal supremacy and papal interference. She liked the old ceremonies and was opposed to all the innovations of the continental reformers. The system which she sanctioned was properly designed to include the more moderate of the two religious parties, but those who would not accept it were to be compelled to obedience. The Queen exercised a jurisdiction in ecclesiastical matters, and at first appointed commissioners to see that the law was properly carried out. These commissioners grew into a permanent body, the Court of High Commission, for the trial of ecclesiastical cases, and the court thus instituted grew in later reigns into an instrument of serious oppression. At present, however, Protestants and Catholics alike had to obey. The Church of England became a national church. But it may be doubted whether the religious settlement under Elizabeth would have been so permanent, had not the events which followed connected it strongly with national feeling. Opposition to the papacy was shown to be a necessary safeguard of the national independence. The stirring events of Elizabeth's reign bound her people together, and demanded that they should offer a united front to their foes. The murmurs of the extreme Protestants were almost drowned in the general awakening of the national enthusiasm, and religious discord among Reformed did not assume any serious form until the more peaceful reign of her successor, when the Reformed religion had become endeared to the sentiments and prejudices of the majority of Englishmen. At first, however, Elizabeth's position was very dangerous. At home were numbers of discontented, both Catholics and Protestants. Abroad, the claims of Mary of Scotland to the English throne were warmly supported by France, 
and Philip of Spain, alarmed at Elizabeth's conduct in the matter of religion, seemed disposed to sink his enmity with France and make common cause against her. Had France, Spain, and Scotland really united against England, Elizabeth's throne could not have stood. But religious difficulties, which had not hitherto given these countries any serious trouble, began to arise, and Elizabeth knew how to use the opportunities thus offered her. Her policy was not noble nor magnanimous, but with an impoverished kingdom, a ruined navy, a feeble army, and an insecure position, noble policy was impossible. The queen was not free to follow her own inclinations, even in the matter of her marriage. Parliament besought her to marry, so as to settle the question of the succession to the throne. But it was hard for her to marry either a Catholic or a Protestant, without either putting herself at a disadvantage to marry of Scotland, or sacrificing the strength of her political position. On the other hand, if she did not marry, Mary was looked upon as her successor. The Archduke Charles of Austria, the Earl of Arran, and Eric, King of Sweden, were proposed to her as husbands, but she preferred Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Her reason kept her inclinations in check, and prevented her from making so unpopular a marriage. While she wavered, she used her other suitors as means for raising expectations among the politicians of Europe. Similarly, in other matters, she was content to raise hopes and balance parties against one another. She strove to give the least possible and receive the largest possible return. She made promises take the place of actions. We have to trace her torturous course through her intricate relations with Scotland, France, and Spain, and see how she managed to steer herself and England clear of the dangers which threatened them. End of section 7